And now presenting the second part of my interview with Louis B. Hobson, Calgary theatre critic, writer, director, and performer in community theatre for over 50 years. If you're enjoying on staging, please take a moment to support the show by joining our Patreon at patreon.com onstaging. So when we talk about your role with community theater, one of the highlight moments of that I'd like to get into. So can you tell me a little bit about the Stephen Truscott story and what it means to you and maybe even to your mom? I know it was important to all of Canada at the time, but I know that you have your own direct connection to that story. Yes. Stephen Truscott and I are the same age. Yes. We were born the same year. And when this all happened, my mother was devastated. And I remember her saying, that could have been you. She said, he's your age. That could have been you. And I know that my mother, through the Catholic Women's League, and they sent letters to the the government saying, you know, you've got this boy in jail. Don't, don't leave him there. And, of course, Pierre Burton picked up on that. And he was the one who championed the fact that you've got a 14-year-old boy waiting to be executed. Languishing in prison. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, at the last moment, literally at the last moment, they uh, commuted it to life in prison, is what it was. Yeah. And, And he spent 10 years. And when I was writing plays and directing plays, my mother would always say, why don't you write one about Stephen? Why don't you write one about Stephen? He really meant something to her. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. He, he really did. My first year of teaching out at Bonas, uh, there was um, a book on the T- Stephen Truscott story, Isabella Bourdais, her book. And I taught it to my grade nines. Oh, wow. Okay. And what we did afterwards is we did a mock trial. And the kids were very good and very, very eager with it to, to, to you know, to give, be, be this witness and be that. We had a great time with it. Mm-hmm. And I looked and saw that there was real drama there. Absolutely. But it took me a long time to actually put it to paper. And the first time I did it was with a former student of mine named Murray McRae. And we won the Alberta playwriting competition with it. Oh, wow. And what it was supposed to happen was that we got a workshop through Alberta Theater Projects. And unfortunately, the person that assigned to work with us decided that it should be told in a very different way. Oh, okay. Yeah. And all the rewriting we did and all, till eventually it was rewritten so much that it made no sense. Oh, that's that it became the story of the lawyers fighting the case instead of about Stephen. And so then years and years wow. later, a group of us went to Prince Edward Island for a month and hashed it out and wrote the Stephen Truscott story. And we did it here, the, the West Village Theater. And I'll never forget, after one performance, this woman came and she said, I was so-and-so in your play. Oh, wow. Yes. And suddenly we realized that it had such a far-reaching thing. Yeah. And then one night, this 
very well-dressed gentleman arrived, and he said, I am one of Stephen Trescott's lawyers, and I'm here to see that you've done this justice. Wait, and he, he was, introduced himself before the show? Before the show. Who does that? <laughs> we were a nervous wreck. A Goodness nervous wreck. gracious. Yeah. Did the cast know he was there? No, we didn't oh, tell well, them. That's well, good. Like, yeah. no, no. Could you imagine? Because no, the just, cast could have found just, out. It was just me and my producer. We were wow. Stage manager knew? <laughs> bullets, sweating bullets. And after it was over, he said, this has to go somewhere else. He says, it can't stop here. Yeah. And that's when it was invited to be done in London, Ontario, where wow. Stephen was living. And so you took it there? We took it there, yes. Yeah. And Did you recast it, or was it the same cast um, brought over? Ha- it had to be half and half. Okay. They insisted that, because they were bringing it in, yeah. half the cast had to be from London, oh, Ontario. Okay. And we brought our Stephen and a couple of other characters. But Stephen's grandson played one of the the, the characters. Well, that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen the picture of you and Stephen and the grandson in, yes. out, out there in the internet. It's a delightful moment. But it was an amazing experience. Absolutely yeah. amazing. Because suddenly all the things we had written about, then we got to see them. Yeah. I mean, we, we went to the forest. We went to the bridge. We went to the river. All of these places that were relevant. Exactly. And and we got a bicycle and rode it to see how long it would take. And, and Did and, your mom, was she around to get to no, see it? No, unfortunately not. I'm so sorry yeah, to see I, it. I am too. I should have done it years earlier. Years earlier. We never have as much time as we would like to think we have with them. Exactly. But the one thing was the day that we were going to go out to see all of this. We had our cars and we went there and there was Stephen. Wow. Yes. And we thought he was going to take us out there. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, no, he said, but I've uh, phoned a couple of people and they'll meet you there. Wow. Yeah. And he, yeah. And then he, he didn't, he wasn't going to come and see the show at first, right down to the wire. And then Finally, and I think it was because his grandson was there, it was in it as well, but he didn't want it to be public that he was there. And so what we had to do was sneak him in the back door and and sit in the side door that Ian McKellen left in the the last row. Yeah. He sat. And when it was over, he then said, No. I'll come down the stairs. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he was really impressed. He was really impressed. And uh, the the reporters, of course, right. knew that he was there. You know, they brought them in from every which way. I mean, it yeah. was just, it was a, a circus. The human interest story. Exactly, exactly. And I remember, of course, one of the reporters asked the obvious question, right? What was it like watching this? Right. And he said, not nearly as hard as living, living it. it. Wow. Yeah. There's so much about that story that reminds me of 12 Angry Men as well. The fact that all 12 of the jury were men and masculine individuals. Oh, yeah. Um, and and the story itself, uh, the lurks behind 12 Angry Men, uh, you know, deliberating in a jury room. To, I don't know the Stephen Truscott story particularly well, but it always does seem like, how did these 12 men come to this decision to do this? 
Well, the the lawyers yeah. decided, and let me tell you, certainly Stephen's lawyers should have jumped in on that one. They decided that the facts that were going to have to be discussed were too lurid for women. Yeah. But, I mean, you needed women on that jury. If there had been six and six, yep. it would never, ever have gone against him like that. I agree. Never. A hundred percent. Because, you know- Men, they all said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they just wanted to look the other way. Well, And also, there was, oh, sure, he could have done it. Absolutely. But uh, it's like Let's my mother, on someone. not a 14-year-old boy. Right? You not know? that 14-year-old boy. Well, almost not any 14-year-old boy. You'd have to really, as my mother said, you'd have to really think about it and be very specific about things. But yeah. when you when you read the trial transcripts, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. And that's all of the things that you had to do to do it. And then you rewrote the ending. Uh, well, that's because uh, he was found, you know, he was exonerated. Right. So you have to write rewrite the ending. Yeah. Yes. How did that feel, putting that um, together and, and doing the show fun. again? It was fun, you know. Uh, but all you had to do was just change a few lines, that's right. all. But it does make the show that much more satisfying. The second yes, newer it does. version of it. It, it but it it doesn't make it as angry. No. Anymore. That's know? true. Yeah. Because boy oh boy, it was wonderful seeing audiences come out of that being so angry. angry. People would say, I don't believe this. Yeah. I don't believe this could have happened. Which yeah. was the better version? The one in Calgary or the one in uh Guelph? Uh, always the first time you do it yeah. is better, you know. I think they were both very good. They were quite different because we had a different, oh, yeah. you know, we had a different Stephen from the first time we did it and things like that. Different the And different theaters provoke different feelings. Oh, uh, well, you can imagine yeah. in London, Ontario, right? the audience. I mean, we were playing every night to people who knew the story intimately, intimately. Mm -hmm. intimately yeah. Like that opening night. There were so many of his classmates there. Wow. With the new ending, having done it a second time, with the newer version and the newer ending, is the story as relevant? And would you put it up again? Or would you look for I, other I places th to, to post I it? I think you could do it again as a period piece. Yeah. But I, I think, Kyle, in order for it to be done again, you really do need to change more than just the ending. Oh, okay. You know, I think the, the the initial speech has to be rewritten as well and things like that. Just because of the sudden tone shift when, well, during the exoneration? Absolutely, yeah. yes. Yeah. And and people are would be coming knowing the ending, you know. Yeah, that's a lot of work. Yeah. But your mom's probably yeah, very happy. She was very happy. It was Not bad. only that you got it made, that you've got it put up, that you got to present it to Stephen himself. Yeah. Well, and he, he was exonerated. He came here when it was done for a law convention here in Calgary. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he came and spoke afterwards. That's amazing. Yeah. So we'll move into another vein <laughs> of questioning here. There's two other topics I wanted to talk to you about. You've said that you briefly considered entering the priesthood. <laughs> and so I wanted to know how your faith relates to your connection with theater. And how does the pageantry of organized religion feel similar to the production well, of the show? Well, you answered your own question. I think that's what drew me to the seminary, was I loved the, the pomp and ceremony of it. I went into the seminary when they 
began to change the ceremony. Right. When they brought English in and when they... And and now there are guitars everywhere. I don't understand it, but... I didn't either. And I think that, that was part I, I don't, of... I don't think I'm as young as you think I am when the type of church that you recall and, and admire and wish to attend to is the same one I'm looking to go to, too. Well, that disillusioned me. Yep. Yeah. Because a lot of the things that had drawn me to it and a lot of the things I'd grown up with, I had this idea that if you ate meat on Friday. Oh, yes. You'd go to hell. No, absolutely. Yeah. This is why the filet fish exists at McDonald's. Exactly. That is the no, whole really? reason that yeah. that exists. And and I remember the number of times I had to go to confession because I would eat a hot dog <laughs> on, on a Friday. Yeah. And so I was asking, as you know, all young seminarians do. So everybody who went to hell because they ate red a meat hot on, a, dog Friday, on yeah. a Friday, are they going to pull them out of hell now? You know, those kind of things. Right, yeah. yes. Is his hell the same way as jail is when they make marijuana legal and they get to free all those people that were in jail under marijuana charges? When they say you can have meat on Fridays, do you get to come out of hell now? <laughs> That's what I, that, yeah. Did, yeah. <laughs> I love um, that. But, yes, but, your, so, your philosophy of focus in school is showing. But I mean, we. I had some phenomenal because my second degree is in philosophy. Yep. Okay. And I had some theologians there who were amazing, amazing teachers. And I mean, the explanation is is simple. Mm -hmm. it, it it's not the idea of the actual eating the meat on the Friday. It's that you chose to do something that you knew was considered wrong. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you do something, but you don't see yep. that it's wrong, then it's not a sin for right. you. And so the, you it can still be a crime. A crime, but not a sin. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But, but, you know, that, that's, that's why I loved philosophy. Yeah. Because, it's, you know, how many souls can dance on the head of a pin, that yep. kind of thing. So I loved that. I, I was in my glory with uh, the... Yeah. That oh, was... absolutely. My father-in-law was a do had his doctorate in philosophy uh, and studied Hume. So I have oh, uh, yeah, okay. did not know him as much of my life as I would have liked to. Uh, the same thing with parents passing f far too sooner than they'd imparted the wisdom of their years. But uh, Well, we had uh, one of our professors was Father Mueller. Here comes again. There's something in this water you gave me. <laughs> um, but he was an existentialist of yep. all things. Uh, and that's when the movie Zorba the Greek came out. Okay. Yep. And it was banned at first. So he said, we're all going to go. The, 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 our philosophy class is all going to go. But you have to read the novel first. first. So we all read the novel and we discussed it. And they went to, it was an amazing experience. To this day, if you ask me what my five favorite movies or top movies are, Zorba's right up there. Wow. Because I saw it through different eyes. Yep. You know, I just, I was blown away because there was so much in there. And the people you were with were invested in oh. all the depth that came within it. Yeah. And your teacher had predisposed you towards you know, this is going to be impactful and meaningful. Yeah. And and this whole idea, the, the reason the church banned it was the whole hedonistic 
approach that Zorba has to life, you know? And as Father Mueller pointed out, this is what the existentialists believed. Right. You know, that because they didn't believe that there was anything beyond yep. this life. So, so how do you bring your faith into theater? Again, I think it's the way I read plays, because there's so much of a lot of religion, whether it be Jewish or Catholic or, or Calvinist or Baptist or anything, it's in there. Yep. It's in there. The way you can direct a play to bring that out, I yeah. even if only three or four people in the audience per night get those religious symbols that you're sticking in your yep. production. Yeah, I mean, it's true. The The Bible was the first mass-produced book in the world, so it was the formative readings for thou millions, billions of people. But and therefore, it is, it's the foundational set upon which they've built all their other ideas, their own concepts, and their own stories from. Uh, the, one of the really tragic things, because I taught straight for 20 years, and then after I retired from the sun, I went back and taught at uh, Chinook Learning, the, oh, the nice. upgrading. Yep. And to see that there were so many people who didn't know what the crown of thorns was if it was referred to in a poem. Right. And you, you go, oh no, you're missing so much. And you try to explain it. And then you get the people saying, I can't listen to that because that's not part of my religion. Yeah. And you go, but it's part of our our literature. It's exactly. part of, you know, you've you've got to have. It's all interwoven. Exactly. Yeah. But unfortunately, we're walking some very fine lines there. And so a great many people go to movies and plays and miss so much. Yes. So much of the depth that could be yeah. pulled from it. And all the, the critical thinking that can be had from having seen and undertaken and been part of the theater. That's why one of the biggest questions I ask people on my podcast here is I say, you know, how will this, how will people seeing your show change them? How will they leave the theater? Because good art is supposed to fundamentally rewrite you. You're supposed to see things in a new way, in a new light. That's why you bore witness. It should do something. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And there are a lot of times I hear from directors, oh, I just want people to laugh. And I was like, well, that's a great thing to have, but they didn't write it so that someone would laugh. Oh, exactly. Exactly. It's saying something. What is that thing? Let's talk about it. The laughter is important. Oh, yes. But what you discuss about that laughter right. on the way home is equally important. Absolutely. The show is only in as important as it provokes the conversation in the car on the way home. Yeah. So what role does planning for the future take for you? I am told that you are a believer in the preordained will of the universe. <laughs> Yes, uh, I, I think that it's it's all been planned out for us, and we're just going along, playing our role. It's like being in the theater, right? It's right. like being in a play, and somebody said, "Okay, Louis, this is your role. Now yep. play it." Yep, and you're like everybody else has the script, but you don't. Yeah, <laughs> boy, do I feel that? Most Played of the that time. improv game. Uh, to that end, on the same note, though, where do you like to go for Vietnamese, and what's the best thing to order? Oh, wow. Because my partner is Vietnamese, we eat a lot of Vietnamese at home. So we don't go out that often for no. Vietnamese. We go a lot for Chinese food. Oh, okay. Yeah, Marco's Kitchen on 16th Avenue. 
perfect. I, I reference these things because I had a conversation with uh, a fellow of yours, Jeff Perry. Oh, yes. Earlier today. And he wanted me to ask you some questions about soothsayers and the, the value of knowing the future before it happens. And uh, then told me a great story about going out for Vietnamese every week for you and discussing the development of his book. We did. We used to eat at a fabulous Vietnamese restaurant in Inglewood. Yep. Yeah. Um, what did you order? What did I? I always order the pho. The pho? Yeah. yeah the, the nice big bowl. The spicy beef pho or are you a chicken uh, man? I like the beef. I want everything in it though. I want right? the tendon. I want the, yeah, everything. Yes. G- give me all the innards of the animal as yes, well. and the just testicles as well? Anything. That, Perfect. Yeah. Yep. That's the way it should be. Yes. Spicy yeah. or no? Uh, yes. I. Uh, yes. And are you the bean sprouts and Absolutely. lime wedge as well? Absolutely. Perfect. And, and all of the little pieces of uh, greenery that makes it even... The mint and everything else that can be Absolutely. added. Absolutely. If, yeah. if you gave it to me, I'm putting it in the bowl. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know if I'm supposed to. It's still going in. The One of the best falls I ever had was in Saigon. Oh, of course. And uh, we, it was late at night and we were wandering around and there was this little old lady sitting on a doorstep kind of thing. And she had all this stuff in front of her and she was making it right there with a little heater underneath and throwing things in. And some of the people were with said, you're not going to eat that, are you? You don't know, you know, what what she's doing. I said, I'll bet you that's the best you're ever going to get and it was because it was she was just making it right outside her house and her daughter i guess it was would go, take the bowl after you finish go upstairs wash, wash it, it down it would it come again oh my god yeah that's probably and of course the experience of having had it lends itself to making it the best bowl well, ever she, absolutely was i i think it was the experience rather than the actual but it was an incredible experience because you just sat there beside her and she was just making it way that's amazing grandma doing the thing and so you're going with jeff every week to have fa and sit down and talk about his book uh, and he tells me that this all came from the visions that you'd had from a soothsayer that somebody had told you that all of these things were going to come to pass. Is that something you still do? Is that something you still follow through on? The the woman's name is Mark Davenport. Yeah. And she's amazing. Simply amazing. It all went back to early when I was teaching at Central Memorial High School. And I had an English 33 class. And I was trying to find something to get them interested in doing a report. And it's going to be hard because it's a 33 class. That's right. But what I did was I said, we're going to do alternatives. Okay. Now, this is a long time ago, you understand. Yes. um, So things like acupuncture, things like chiropractors, these were all new. Right. Oh, yeah. I know. They were outlandish. Exactly. Heathen things to do in Calgary, especially. So I said to them, find those kind of things and research them and do it. And this young girl came to me and said, can I do a report on a psychic? Oh my God, you're yes, of course. And I said, sure, (laughs) you know, that's fine. And she said, so she came back after and she said, and I said to them, if you can get the subject to come and speak 
to the class. So we had an acupuncturist come and oh, and, wow. and, and Louis was always they they stuck needles in me. Oh wow, the, you were always the guinea pig. Well, I had to be the guinea pig because <laughs> the principal said, "Don't you dare right. let them stick a needle in any kid in that yeah, room. We have liability you know, insurance on that's you, right. Don't not you them. dare let a, somebody <laughs> manipulate somebody's neck in your classroom, you know, yeah. or you'll be carted out of there. So she said, my psychic won't come to talk to the class unless you've had a reading with her first. Oh, wow. So okay. I said, okay. How did you feel about this at the time? Um, well. Uh, Open-minded? Yeah. So. I went yeah. and met her. And this is the late woman. 80s, early 90s? Uh, oh, it was in the 80s. Yeah, okay. Oh, definitely. Oh, 70s. What are we talking? Not yeah. even, no, even no, further 70s. back. Yeah. So anyway, Marg does it. She, she uses cards, not tarot cards, just ordinary cards. Wow. And she talks. And then she said, ah, there's a gentleman here. He's come into the room. And he said that you'll recognize him when he does something. Okay. And I said, okay, sure. And she said, oh, it was a really nasty thing he just did. He stuck his finger right up his nose. <laughs> that was my grandfather. He was a butcher, and he had cut off his middle finger on a saw. Right. So he only had it down the to the knuckle. And he used to do that and tease kids all the time by putting that knuckle against right uh, all the way up his nose because it's not going anywhere how in god's wow. name would she have known that and then she began to, to say things that he was telling me that i should do and shouldn't do and then she said he said he was a mason and he wants you to get his apron it's very valuable and don't ever let it get taken away from the family I said, no, he wasn't. He said he was a butcher, so it's probably his a butcher's apron. She said, well, he's telling me it was a mason's apron. So I went home and I told my dad, and don't ask me, go ask Grandma Hobson. Right, of course. Yeah. So I went, asked her about, uh, was Grandpa Hobson a mason as well as a butcher? And she said, who told you that? Oh, my God. <laughs> I said, well, I just went to this psychic, and she said, his apron is in the bottom drawer in the bedroom. My grandfather was in England, belonged to the Masons. Right. Yes. Yes. And when he came to Blairmore, because it was so Catholic, right, he put his apron away and didn't tell anybody that he was a Mason. And what was in the apron? Just the apron, but did not want it to be destroyed. He didn't want to lose it. My nephew is a mason now. Oh, that's and wonderful. he has the apron. That's amazing. But I've known Mark then for oh, 40 years, at least. At if least not 40 longer. years. And, 1980 uh, was 43 years ago, so at that, least okay. so it's 40 years. Close to 50 years. Yeah. But one time when she was reading, a Jack came up, and she said, oh, this young man is going to come back into your life. You met him a very long time ago just briefly, but he's going to come to you and he's going to want you to write a book with him. What? And his name is, starts with a J. For the Jack. Sure, fine, okay. It was probably five or six years later Wow. when Jeff Perry came. And it wasn't until we were in the middle of working on his book when I went, 
oh my God, this is who you're Mark the Jack. Meant. This is the Jack. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. So do I believe? Yes. I mean, you've had significant circumstantial evidence to provide you with belief, oh, right? Yes. Like some that would blow your mind. Incredible. Yes. It would not blow my mind. <laughs> I'm fully of the opinion that there are just people that can see the way the world is unraveling before us in in the way that time works. Yeah. And they just see things that have happened for them but have not happened yet. I had that happen to me in um, New Orleans once and I was uh, there alone for a couple of weeks because I was researching for myself, Tennessee Williams, because I, I did a thesis on, on him when I was at university in my, and uh, I went to see, you know, the streetcar named Desire, and I went to see the, the French things. Quarter, all of that sort of thing. And it was one day and I was wandering and it's like little Warrens in the French Quarter. And I took a wrong turn. As you do. And I'm walking and I look and there's this sign for a psychic. And there's this grizzled old man standing there. And he said, come on, this is where you're coming. I said, no, no, I've taken a wrong turn. I'm, I'm lost. And he said, no, you're not. He says, you were meant to come here. I'm going, oh my God. <laughs> and How do you say no to that? Exactly. So um, I said, oh, okay. I said, how much? He said, it's a dollar a minute. And I said, okay, I'll take 20, $30. He said, no, you won't. He said, you'll take a lot more than that. Oh, wow. He says, I'm going to empty that wallet. And I went in and again, he, things he could not possibly have known. That's incredible. And then after it was all over, I looked on the wall and the, the letters, the testaments all over the wall of people. Yeah. That, yeah. Stating. Yeah. And, and he was the one who said, in a previous life, you lived here. And he said, I want you to take a certain river voyage. He said, it, and I want you to go to such and such a, a graveyard. Oh, my goodness. You'll know why I sent you there. And? And it did. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. Yes, yes. I'm not so much I believe in past lives, but yeah, if a psychic ever said something like that to me, I definitely would be <laughs> yeah, yeah. A paying the upcharge on the river I, I think probably what it was was that... Because I, you know, I, I loved the American Civil War. I read everything I could. I saw all the movies. And so when I was rowing where he told me to row and you're looking at the, the big trees and, and walking through that graveyard and, and, you know, with all the big marble statues and things like that, I think what you go is, yeah, I would have loved to have lived there. I think that's more than, oh, yeah. I've been I lived here, here. Yeah, I've been here before. It's just that feeling that, yeah, this is what it must have been. I could see how this place could be right for me. Yeah, exactly. Maybe it would have been nicer if I had lived here during the, but it, but but I'd have to have been very rich because. Oh yes, hundred <laughs> percent. You're doubtlessly a very easy to talk to person and exceptionally loquacious, and you think deep thoughts about the things you see, and you've got a great history and storied experience with all of theater itself. But I do have to ask the question, how do you find something new to say after 600 plus reviews that so much of the time could be the same thing of everyone worked very hard, the audience laughed and applauded? You have no idea how difficult. Oh, I do. Yeah. <laughs> it is very difficult. You know, Kyle, the most difficult thing 
for me is to find the lead for a review. Right, L-E-D-E, the yes. lead, not like who was the star performer. No, the, yeah. no, the lead to, when I'm writing the review. Right. And I agonize over that sometimes. And, and I've learned now not to sit at my computer to do it. What I do is I go and lie down with the cats. Oh. Yeah, as soon as I lie down in the bed, the two cats come and they, they uh, want to lie down with me. And I think and think, and eventually a line or two will come to me. And as soon as I have that, I can go to my computer and I can write. But if I don't have it, I can't write. And you know, that goes back all the way to when I was in university. If I didn't have a way to begin an essay, I'd agonize over it. I had a great friend, Peter Burney, who was the television writer at The Sun for a while, and then he went off to the Vancouver Sun, etc. And what Peter used to do was he'd go for the for the, the lead for the he'd go blah 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 blah, and then he'd write the body. Yep. And after he read the body of his thing, yep. he'd go back and put the lead in. Yep. The movie Finding Forrester has that where you start writing with something else that you're just copying, and then suddenly it doesn't. It's not copying anymore, and it's your own words, exactly. it's your own voice, it's your own and thing. That's how. But it, poor Peter came back to bite him in the oh, back no. end once. Oh no! Because blah 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 blah. The blah 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 was in print. That came back to bite in Finding Forrester as well. I don't feel like I'm spoiling a movie that's over thirty years old. But in Finding Forrester, that gets published, and the first three lines are from on you know a book from like Solomon Rushdie. So. Exactly. And they're well, like, uh, was, you've plagiarized. This was Peter. Oh no! Yeah. 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 Blah, 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 blah. And of course, the the publisher came to his desk and said, what in blazes why? is this? Why is this happening? Why is this blah, blah, blah thing up here? <laughs> and he just forgot to, to put a lead on his, his yep. story. Yeah. But it, yes, it's very, very difficult. Yeah. But as I said, once I start writing, I'm fine. But I also like to discuss things. I talk them aloud. And I mean, discuss with myself. Right. Yeah. No, uh, that makes sense. Yeah. Before I sit down and write as well. So the old days when you had to rush back from seeing the play and write the review right away. Right. I'm so happy I don't have to do that because that's, Kyle, when you really do begin using the same. The same aphorisms. Absolutely. The same pointless drivel yeah you know <laughs> and it does get where it becomes way. the same sort of thing it's it's uh, I, i've had uh, actors say you know you said the same thing about that about me once before you know like, well you evoke that in me um that's just <laughs> i guess consider that to be you know a part and parcel of who you are that's one thing too actors directors writers whatever they are they really do believe and and, and i guess because i you know i've been on the other end of criticism right. that you hold those memories, okay? Because I'll have people come up to me and say, you know what you said about me in this play, don't you? Like, no, I wrote it down and then published it. That way I didn't have to remember it. Yeah, exactly. And I don't, <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't remember what I said. Even if they'll come and say, thank you for that review. And I'm going, what did I say? What did I say? You know. That's and fair. Others, you know, how, how, why were you so harsh what did I say? What did I say? And again, they should know this, but again, as I said, I've been through it as well. It is subjective. It is subjective. It's at that moment, and I'm writing a review. I'm not writing a criticism. 
Right. I'm not doing the wonderful thing that, you know, you find in the New Yorker magazine and things like that, where they really analyze, right? Yeah. yeah that's not what I'm doing. No. I am giving a review, an opinion, a reaction. Yeah. Roger Ebert said that it's the, that he was always striving for what is the audience? How do I represent myself as the audience to recognize what the person who wanted to see that show would get from going to see it? Mm -hmm. He's like, it's not so much a critical review as it is a critical commentary on it is as much a, this is what you will get out of going to see this. Yes. Because essentially when people read a review, I think that that's what they're asking. Yeah. From you. Yeah. Will I like this? And what will I get out of it? Yeah. What That's will it do? That's what people for me? want. Yeah. I, I, Am I the audience? Yes. And I've had people come to me and say, I read you all the time. And if you like something, I won't go. What? You know? Yeah. But I said to them, but you see, I'm doing my job. Yeah, that's true. I'm doing my job. Yep. You know now my likes and dislikes, and we are not on the same wavelength. And that's was always the problem, certainly with movies, with the Toronto Sun, when they had five different people right. reviewing movies. And you never knew which well, one you were exactly. going to get. Yep. You're reading that and you're going, hmm. Do I like what Liz Braun says? So it's really important, I think, that you have one person doing it. Yep. And you get to, to know whether... Or if you're going to... All five need... Well, nowadays, all five get to publish their, their review, the, right? That's the, yes. the status of today. My problem is, is that we end up with people like Armand White, who seem to delight in showing us how to not like something and yeah. to regale it and to revile it as though it is not worthy of being in, in the cultural icon. That's argument. part of his... Shtick. Yeah, it's his purpose. Yeah, that's what, yeah, no, that's, but again, it doesn't. <laughs> I'm going to stand here and say yeah. no as well. <laughs> it doesn't do anybody any good. No. Not him, not the his readers, not the subjects. And certainly not the subjects, yes. No. It just, just creates harm. Yeah. And uh, I don't think the, the perspective of a, of a reviewer should do that. But there is a this strange, nebulous world we live in nowadays where Rotten Tomatoes review scores and percentages matter in ways that critical commentary about a piece don't have a place for it anymore. And it's you're trying to find where can we talk about these things from an educated perspective so that people will feel, recognize the value of what that art was and how that art will shape and change society to come or won't. Have you noticed that we no longer, and I don't know how many years this has been, I think it's ever since I started with Michelle Jarvie uh, as editor, we don't put star ratings anymore. No, yeah. For a very good reason. Because people would read the headline and then jump down. And read the stars and walk away. That's right. Yeah. And they wouldn't, as you say, read something for discussion. Yep. Yeah. So no, no more of the... This, yeah. There's no stars anymore. No, it, you, it's hard to tell, and, and and now it's the the people are are combing articles and reviews to see whether or not it was positively written or negatively reviewed. Exactly, and I think that's that's a good thing. Yeah, but uh, they're doing it on a wholesale level. AI is doing it so that it can feed unto Rotten Tomatoes the positive or negative connotation of it. But there are some times where you read a negative review and you're like, this person said a lot of nice things about mm -hmm. this. Why is this coming through as one of the negative or, reviews? Or you get. This, this, they're positive and then you read the review and go 
No, no, it's not. Yeah, they weren't thinking nice things no. at all about this production. I have fun with Rotten Tomatoes on that. Exactly yes. what you're saying. Absolutely. Is reading some of those negative reviews, but they said some really positive. Things. Absolutely. And that just goes to the nature too and the vagaries that come from art, especially something that is over two hours or 90 minutes in length that you're getting. There's doubtlessly going to be moments of lull and moments of, okay, that didn't work this time or that thing fell off the stage for the time I got to see it or this movie, there's a weird cut here and there's just far too many edits in one particular moment. I reviewed movies for five years for calgarymovies.com and my, my whole point of that was I, I'm not going to review the movie. I'm going to review the reviews. And what I spent my time doing was I'd see the movie and then I would spend a weekend reading as many reviews as I possibly could to kind of gain a sense of what all these reviewers were saying and always finding these... Re- one reviewer was giving everything... He, the highest rating he ever gave a movie was four and a, fi- four and a half stars out of five. And I said, why haven't you given a movie five stars? And he said, well, no movies reached that. Well, then you've got the wrong metric, I said, because obviously there are five-star movies out there. I'm basically going to suggest that anytime you've put a four and a half stars out of there, that's a five-star movie. Oh, no, anything could be made better. That's not how this works. (laughs) No, absolutely. (laughs) And and that's the same thing with, you see, reviewers, it's always three stars. Right. You know, that that magical three stars. Yeah. In other words, you're not making a commitment. Yeah. It's a passing grade. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Let's get you passed and move on to the next, the entire next student. Or give me the two, give me the five, or give me the one. Yeah. Yeah. Or it means more than the three. But don't give me any of them. And I do like the idea that it says, don't give me a star, give me the thoughts you had. I would like to share in this movie tell, with Tell you. me what you thought about my play. Tell me what you thought about my uh, movie. That's why I'm reading you. Yep. Don't tell me it's three stars out of five. Yeah, no. And the purpose of this podcast the, on staging is for me to have those discussions with people ahead of time. And then when I when the show comes out, I go see it, I review it, and I talk about what worked well with regards to what they talked to me about. And then I say, what worked in general? Who is going to want to come and see this show? Why would you want to see it? And how will it change you? And live performance is a vapor that exists for but a moment. And then it is gone. It's like a perfume full in your nostrils when you're in the heady cloud of it. But when it fades, you're only left with the memory, powerful or not. So as someone, Louis, who has experienced the full cosmetics counter (laughs) of the perfumes of performance, how has your life been made better by live theater? And what would you say to convince someone they need live theater in their life? Oh, immeasurably. Theater has enriched my life from the very first time I ever saw it. And the very first time I can remember was my dad. He was an amateur dramatics in Blairmore. Oh, wow. Yes. And there's a picture that is me. And I'm, I can't be more than three or four years old. And I'm sitting on his knee in the dressing room and he's putting on makeup. And I'm sitting on his knee watching in the mirror him putting on his makeup. And That's where it started for me. But the irony is my father was not a great, I mean, he didn't like theater all that much. (laughs) My mother did. That's how it works. But but my father was very, very supportive. He would have preferred 
I play sports. He taught, uh, he was my hockey coach. He was my baseball coach. He was my curling coach. I, I did it all for him, but it was the theater. But if I wanted to see a play in Lethbridge, mm-hmm. my dad would drive me there so I could see it. And he was very proud of anything I did. Yeah. But to drag him to theater was always difficult. And he's up there listening. I have to tell the most famous father story. We were in London and we went to see Angela Lansbury doing Mame, okay, the musical Mame. And we were in the theater. The only seats we could get were in the balcony or maybe they were cheap or whatever. But we were sitting there and my father was not looking at the stage very often. I'm going, oh, dear God, he's, you know, he's bored solid with this. And then the lights went down and he grabbed me and he said, look, who's two rows behind me? Look, who's two? It was Julie Andrews. Oh, my goodness. And he said, he gave me his his program with Angela Lansbury's picture on the front and Mamie's, go get my, her autograph. Go. I said, dad, you don't do that you don't <laughs> you know, at this time you, you know this is julie andrews leave her alone he said yeah. no you've got to and <laughs> this is the conversation and then this voice says just bring me the program and i'll sign it <laughs> and i brought the program <laughs> up to julie andrews wow and she signed it my father showed that for years years and i got to when we were doing the Princess Diaries, I said to Julie Andrews, told her that story. When she signed the program of an she Angela Lansbury playbill. Of my father over Angela Lansbury's face. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. She laughed and laughed and laughed. Yeah. That is a remarkable story. And I feel like theater, live theater especially, is a great teacher of compassion and kindness and thoughtfulness. When you go see live theater and you see these lives and these these you, these dramatics played out in front of you, is there anything about theater that has taught you how to be a better human being? It allowed me to laugh. It allowed me to cry. It allowed me to gasp. When I go to theater, I am 100% involved. Yes, I just, I lose myself. When those lights go down and that curtain opens, I'm there. Sophocles was so right, hey? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And it changes your life, even if it's just for the moment you're there, when you get to laugh. And there are so many incredible artists right here in Calgary, and you, you go and you see the things they're doing and accomplishing. You know? And... We've seen huge failures. Yes. But you know, you're watching it and you're going, but people gave their hearts to that, you know? And so what it failed. I mean, I've had huge failures in my life. That's it's life that's being shown on stage. You go see a movie, you go see you you listen to a radio show or even this podcast, and it is curated for your experience. Anything that's there is deliberate, intentional, and it was a decision and a choice to make it happen on screen and in the editing room. With live theater, things go awry. Part of the 
price of the admission is the chance, is the hope that somebody will choke on a grain of rice and something will happen <laughs> on stage or that something will go wrong and a personal trip and fall into the orchestra pit. They'll be fine. They landed on the tuba player. But the thing is, is that the chance of that happening exists at any moment. And the, there are those moments with live theater, as you said, that are immediate. One of my most incredible experiences was I was in London and I would see as many as 70 plays in two months, okay? And I was leaving and I'd seen almost everything there was and there was a first preview for a play called Equus, okay? So I went down to the theater and I went there and I said, uh, a ticket, and she said, for when? I said, well, for tonight. And she said, you see that lineup? Oh, my goodness. She said, all those people are waiting for tickets. She said, there are no tickets left. They're waiting for people who phone in and say, I can't make I it. I can't make it. Wow. And I said, but I'm going back to Canada. She said, there's the lineup. Wow. So I went sneaking around you know, the line, and the director came out. And he said, we came along the line, we were all there. And he said, you have no idea how excited I am, the producers are, and probably the cast when we tell them that all you people want to see it. He said, the way the set has been built is that there are bleachers on the stage. He said, I'm going to let you people come in and sit on those bleachers, just because you were willing to wait out in this lineup for a all chance. this time. For a he chance. Said, but you have to promise me that you won't look out at the audience, that you will just keep looking at what's happening on the stage. Please promise me. We all go, yes, yes, yes. And we went in, and it was, of course, if you've seen Equus, yeah. totally, totally magical because. The characters, other than the boy and the psychiatrist, the actors sat on those bleachers. Right. So you're sitting there, and suddenly a woman gets up, and she walks into the play. Right. Kyle, you cannot even imagine how magical that experience was. That's and incredible. And it was so magical that from then on in, they sold the bleachers bleacher seats because it made so much more sense yes for that talk about power too when you don't you don't know these people you're sitting next no. to in the bleacher seats no and that lady who's sitting next to you just gets up and she she's been an actor the whole of time oh, and you did not know hand. that and you know uh, and the audience said, themselves would be sitting there wondering what? who is involved exactly oh. which which and uh, you know people said well weren't you tempted to, to look in the audience. Are you joking? I'm two feet away from the these amazing actors. Why would I want to with, watch a bunch of people not exactly, doing anything? You know, and the horses coming with those beautiful heads on. And oh no, I was. It was. It was absolutely magical watching Aquas. That's amazing. Yeah. This has been a delightful Thank experience you. chatting with you, Louis. You are a luminary in community theater in Calgary. And I think that community theater is as established and as blossomed and as well-grown intended to because of your attentive care and attention. Well, it's made my life 
So if I've been able to give absolutely anything back, I don't think I'd have had the life and the memories and the loves that I have if it weren't for theater. Thanks for listening.